Hey everyone, I have some exciting things getting ready to start right now. Are you ready for this? Okay, here's the scoop. I needed some help again. So right now you're about ready to be blessed with one of my best friends in ministry and also in prophecy. And he comes from Jan Markell's ministry uh, is Mark Henry. He's been here before, long time ago. He's back again. He is with me at the conference that we had in Palm Springs, California, way back in 2019. You're about ready to be super blessed by my friend Mark. Uh, please give a warm welcome from wherever you are sitting. And uh, I can't wait to see you next week. But right now, here's Mark Henry. Good evening, friends. Boy, it is great to be with you tonight. I've been praying for Hope for Our Times since its very inception. Pastor Tom shared with me about how he wanted to develop the ministry, and so I've been praying with him ever since the very beginning. Pastor Tom and I really date back uh, quite a ways. We both pastored in the same town. He pastored on one side of the town, I pastored on the other, and it was very common when we would go out to dinner, and Jerry and I'd be someplace, and someone would be waving from the other side of the of the restaurant. Hello, Pastor Tom. Hello, Pastor Tom. And I'd always smile, you know, try and put on a, a good show. <laughs> I'd walk over to him and say, I'm not Pastor Tom. I'm Pastor Mark. And, and, but Pastor Tom, I know who you're talking about. And then we'd have this conversation. I'd say, well, just remember this. He's the handsome older brother. And that's how I always left it. So when you reach out to Pastor Tom, just remind him he's the handsome older brother. Well, hey, tonight, as uh, we kind of look through some things, I just want you to know that the time for humanity is winding down. If you picked up Pastor Tom's podcast this last week, some of the crazy things that are happening, the lawlessness, the violence, and so forth, um, we recognize we are living in the last days. And so this subject is so very important, the subject of the rapture. And just a week and a half ago, uh, here in Minneapolis, uh, Jan Markell and myself had a conference, Understanding the Times. We had Billy Crone with us. And I just want to encourage you, we're talking about some of these very similar things, current events, but Billy Crone did an amazing message on heaven. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're a citizen of heaven, and I trust that you're eagerly awaiting for our Savior. You should be. And so he talks about heaven, and I just want to encourage you, go to markhenryministry.com, uh, find that message, listen to his message on heaven, it'll encourage your heart, your soul, and your mind. And we're looking forward to later in 2022, Pastor Tom's going to be joining us here in Minneapolis and joining us for Understanding the Times. So you can be praying for that as we look to the future. Well, one of the things that I'm really committed to is helping men and families in these last days. Uh, I mean, if you remember what Jesus said, when he comes, it would be like the days of Noah. What were the days of Noah like? Well, the thoughts of men's hearts were only evil continuously. And, he, and God says to him, my spirit will not always strive with men. This grieves my heart. God says there's a timeline and there's an end. And it goes on in the scriptures there and describes the lawlessness, the violence, the contempt, the hate, um, the disregard for human life. And, and it, it, was, it was so burdensome to God that he tells Noah to build an ark. Now remember what it says in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7 about Noah. It says, by faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen. In other words, no one had seen it rain. No one had seen this catastrophe, global catastrophe coming. But there was one man who had a prophetic message from God that the flood was going to come and was going to destroy the earth and only those who were in the ark were going to survive. Now the question is, when he got that prophetic word, just like we are given a prophetic word, for example, in the book of Revelation, Daniel, etc., what did he do? It says, in reverence he prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. What kind of men do we need? We need really godly men in these last days. And so one of the things that 
Jared and I have been working on is the book, The Man Code, trying to help you and your family uh, develop the kind of men that we need for our families, for our nation, for our country, for our churches to navigate these difficult times. And you might say, you know, I'm a, I'm a lady. This what doesn't really apply to me. Oh, it really does apply to you. You see, Jared and I got married. My dad had died when I was very young. Uh, I was adopted. He had abandoned our family. Uh, I saw lots of brokenness. And when I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior, I was like, I'm reading through the Bible. And it's like, God, how do I do this? How do I become a good man? I want to have a family someday. And so as a student, I'm reading through the Bible, and these 12 things really start to stand out. For example, real men pursue biblical success. Real men do not abandon their families. Real men love the gospel and the church. And these 12 things kind of developed. Then Jara and I got married. Then we had children. And my daughter, I taught these things to my daughter. Jara re-emphasized these things to our daughter so that she would marry a good man. And once she got married, she would, she would be the catalyst for encouraging these things in his heart, his soul, and in their children. And so now even today, we're teaching them to our grandchildren. So if you're a single lady, this book is really for you as you're trying to think about what kind of husband you're going to have. And once you have a husband, how you encourage him to be a man of God. And so I just want to encourage you to be watching, uh, again, with Mark Henry Ministries uh, uh, webpage uh, that's going to be coming out in December. And Pastor Tom just asked me a, a couple of weeks ago, he's endorsed the book, if, uh, if he can sell it in the bookstore. So you'll be seeing that around. So uh, avail yourself to that. Why? Because we're living in the last days and we need really strong men that love their wives, love their children, love their churches, love the gospel, love the Lord Jesus, and help us navigate these difficult days. Well, tonight I want to talk about uh, capturing the rapture, and I really want to focus on seven key things that are, are, are critical for us to understand about the rapture and why it's important. But before we do that, I want to kind of give an overview, and I want to start by reading John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, a familiar text, and I want to pray for us. Listen to these words. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Father, I just pray that you would take this passage, that you'd burn it into our hearts, and that we might be a blessing to one another. Help us to anticipate the Savior who died for us coming for us and taking us to a place that he's prepared for his church. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, as we kind of unfold this tonight, I want to do two things before we look at those seven key elements of why the rapture is so important to you. And, and it's basically kind of like stepping back so you can kind of see the big view, the big picture. Um, you know, my, uh, my family, they love putting together puzzles. I didn't really care much for puzzles, but uh, they, they would go and they'd pick a puzzle and, and um, Jarrah would set it up on the, on the table and then, like, then the day would come and then they'd open the box and then they would dump it all out. And I would try it during that time to walk by and make sure I grabbed a piece and put it in my pocket because... I always wanted to have the final piece, um, you know, on hand. You know, it's just really great. They get the whole puzzle together. They can't find the last piece. Everyone's looking around the floor, and I walk up and go, oh, I have it, and stick it right in. It's awesome. Anyways, try that sometime. But my point for it is simply this, is the illustration, is that when you think about eschatology, a lot of times people are looking at individual pieces. We're looking at one verse, and and. Quite honestly, unless you look at all of the pieces, unless you're able to look, step back and to look at the big picture, it's hard to put everything in the place where it should go. 
And I think that's part of the confusion that we have among Christians today in our churches and in our homes and our, in our home Bible studies, whatever the case might be, is that people really don't have the big picture. And so tonight, I want to try and help us catch that big picture. Or maybe another way of saying that is you're going to the mountains and you go into the mountains and you got this beautiful scene, you're at the lake, and it's like, okay, that's awesome. But you really don't get a sense for the scope and the magnitude of that mountain range. And so you get back a little ways. And so you're looking at the Tetons there. You step back a little ways and, wow, okay, they're, they're beautiful. But you still don't have the sense of, uh, of the lay of the land. You still don't get the sense of the big picture. So you get an aerial view. And you get up higher and you can see it. And then you can go with a satellite view, or whatever the case might be. You just get farther and farther back so you can see the biggest part. And then you just narrow it down, narrow it down, narrow it down. Now, listen, all of those little pieces are really important because the details about what Jesus does, what the Antichrist does, what Satan does, all of them become really important. For example, one time I was talking to a gentleman who was a, a pastor, an ordained pastor, and he uh, was arguing with me about eschatology. He's a post-millennialist, I'm a pre-millennialist, and we were talking back and forth and in and, and these debates that would go on for like eight hours at a time. And so I realized that these debates that were philosophical in nature were inadequate and that we had to start looking at the details. And so we just, I just decided the next time we were together, I was going to start in Genesis, and we were just going to systematically walk through the Bible. And so often I would get to details, and it's like, okay, here's another piece, and this is how this fits here. And he would just fold his hands with disgust, and he'd say, Mark, Mark, you just don't understand the flow of Scripture. And really, that, that wasn't true. And finally, I got all the way up to the book of Revelation with him doing this after hours of doing this. And it says there in Revelation chapter uh, end of 19, first part of 20, that Satan is bound for the thousand years. And I said to him, his name was John, I said, John, you believe that we're currently in uh, the millennial kingdom right now and the gospel's overtaking the world and, and it's getting better. And I said, okay, just take, stop the pragmatic analysis of that. I said, just, just consider, is Satan bound right now or is Satan actively doing things? I mean, doesn't it say in Peter that, the, that Satan is a roaring lion seeking who he may devour? Isn't that the message to the church? And again, I just remember him folding his arms and just saying, Mark, Mark, you don't understand the flow of Scripture. And I'm like, no, Jesus says here that either he's bound for the thousand years in Revelation 19 and 20 during the millennial kingdom, or we're living in the church age, my friend, and he's a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. He's after your children, he's after your heart, he's after your soul, he's after your mind. It can't be both. It's one or the other. So these things really become important, not only in an eschatology element, but some of the very pragmatic, practical implications for our life. So let me just kind of quickly just give you an overview of some of the key things that you kind of got to keep in mind. You always got to start with millennial views. Now, again, when you just trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, and maybe you have, you're probably not going to even feel familiar with the terms, let alone the concepts, all right? So let me give you some of the terms. Let me give you some of the concepts. I remember as I trusted Jesus as a teenager, I walked into this uh, this uh, uh, store, and there was a pastor there in our community, and I, and I saw him, recognized him, his name was Bob. I walked up to Bob and said, Bob, I'm reading the Bible, but I don't understand. I started asking him some questions about prophecy, and he just looked at me and said, I really don't know. I'm just a pantheologist, and I didn't know any of these, these terms. I said, well, what's that? What's that? And he goes, well, I just believe everything's going to pan out, and his view was uh, simply that, you know, prophecy's nice, but it really doesn't impact me personally, and it's really insignificant, and it's all going to pan out, so why worry about it? And even as a new follower of Jesus, I was blown away because I'd already read enough of the Bible that in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, 
It says that those who read these words, understand these words, and obey these words, there's a blessing for them. And I wanted every blessing that God had for me in my life. Uh, I'd already read, you know, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 10, where it says, don't seal up the words of this book so that people can understand them because the, the time is near. Jesus' coming is near, so don't seal it up. Don't hide these things. And so these things are meant for us to understand so that you and I can obey God and follow God. So let's just kind of talk about these millennial views just really quick. Just kind of, again, step back, the big picture, because it's really hard to communicate because all of us approach these things with presuppositions, and we got to understand the, the bigger picture. So all millennialism is simply uh, those individuals who, who see that there's, or believe, rather, uh, they believe that when Jesus comes back, there's not going to be a millennial kingdom for a thousand years, that the church has replaced Israel. Um, that all of the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are fulfilled in the church. We're currently living in the millennial kingdom. But they believe that it's actually going to get worse. The millennial kingdom, the gospel, everything that's happening is going to get worse and worse and worse. And then Jesus is going to come back and he's going to create a new heavens and new earth. It's called the eternal state. So realize when you're talking to some people, they're all millennialists. And so when you talk about the rapture, for example, they don't believe in any of that. Why? Because... They believe that the tribulation has already happened, it's already in the past, um, we're currently living in the millennium. Post-millennialists believe this similar. They believe, again, that the tribulation happened in the past. Most of them are preterists. They would say it happened in 70 AD uh, with the destruction of Jerusalem, and, and that we're currently living in the millennial kingdom. But they believe, in contrast to the amillennialists, that if they keep sharing the gospel, the gospel will spread, the gospel will spread, and then it's going to get better on earth. And are there post-millennialists today? Absolutely. Uh, they're called Reconstructionists, and, and they think the, that the world's getting better. I, I would suggest to you it's not getting better. It is going to get worse. Uh, and then Jesus is going to rapture his church, and the tribulation is going to come. Then we've got premillennialists. Um, in the pre-mill family, there's two, there's two groups, the historic pre-mill and then the dispensational pre-mill. Historic pre-mill uh, has a lot of the similar views in the sense that um, the church replaces Israel. They do believe that there's a little bit of a distinction, that God does have certain things in future for Israel. But basically all of the promises that God had promised to Israel in the Old Testament, whether it's Genesis chapter 12 or the book of Exodus, whatever the case might be, that all of those are going to ultimately be fulfilled for the most part in, in relationship to the church. Um, but all three of those views have a post, kind of this, if they believe in a rapture at all, it's going to be like this post sort of millennial sort of rapture. Anyways, premillennialism, on the other hand, anticipates a couple of things. One, that there's going to be this tribulational period. And uh, myself we would believe, and Pastor Tom and others that you know, uh, Jack Hibbs and others, that we're, we're pre-tribulation, so be, during the, when the tribulation starts, the rapture is going to have already taken place. But we got to understand that there are others who are mid-trib that believe that the, during the tribulation, while it's still future, is going to happen. The rapture is going to happen in the middle or pre-wrath. Um, I call this the three-quarter program because they believe it's the wrath is only in the last quarter of the tribulation, and so we're taken from the wrath, but it's at the very end. Or at the very end, some, of course, would be post-tribulation. So they go, the church goes all the way through the tribulation, and then we're raptured. So all of this, you kind of sort through as you're talking with someone to figure out where they're at if you're going to really have communication. So tonight, just as you know, I'm talking, or Pastor Tom, or, or someone that Pastor Tom would host here, we'd be premillennial, dispensational, premillennial 
premillennialist and, uh, and pre-tribulational. So know that we're approaching it from that standpoint. Now, when you look at those, the, these different groups that are millennialists, when you talk about the rapture, oftentimes what happens is there's this merger. Um, and it's the second coming of Jesus and the rapture, and they just see them as the same thing. So actually, if you're on-mill, post-mill, or historic pre-mill, all three of those groups are going to see the second coming and the rapture as a synonymous event. Only dispensational premillennialists, for the most part, are going to see that there's this pre-tribulational rapture. So what I want you to see with me is there's similarities, but there's differences. For example, you got two Toyota vehicles here, and they're similar. They're both white. They both have uh, four wheels. They both have Toyota emblems on them. Uh, they're both situated in the mountains, but they're two completely different cars. They're two completely different designs, and they're made to accomplish different things. Um, this is made for hauling. This is not made for hauling. This is made for uh, carrying more people, and this is for more road, you know, uh, better mileage. Uh, this, this isn't concerned so much about mileage. It's concerned about four-wheeling in the mountains. And so there's this different design. There's different intentions. And even so, that's God's intent for the rapture and the second coming of Christ. So they're similar but they're different. And so I just want to show you some of those contrasts before we look at the seven reasons why the rapture is so important for you. Uh, look, look at this just really quick. When you think about the rapture and the second coming, there's 19 verses in the New Testament that talk about the rapture. There's roughly 1,800 verses in both the Old Testament and the New Testament on the subject of the second coming. So there's, there's a lot more verses on this subject, and some would say, as a result of that, um, that these few 19 verses are really insignificant and not important. That's not true. It's just like those two vehicles. They're similar. There's going to be similarities between them, but there's different, when you look at the details, there's different things happening. God has different things going on. And if God tells us about it, even if it's only in one verse, it's important because Jesus says all Scripture um, is, is God-breathed. It's inspired by God. So let's look really quick. Let's look at these two. Let's contrast them. When you look at the 19 verses in the New Testament, they're not in the Old Testament, they're in the New Testament, and you look at the rapture, the saints will be taken. Those who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. So the pronouns that will be used is always we and us. And when the rapture takes place, if there's some reference to those who don't know Jesus, it'll always be they and them. Pronouns do matter. You know, we live in a day and age where everyone gets to pick their pronouns. Well, pronouns actually mean something when you're doing a literal, literal historical, grammatical interpretation of a text. Uh, all of those things come into bear. So these 19 verses that we're going to look at or refer to in the New Testament, they're always going to be taking the saints. The saints are going to be taken. But in the second coming, Jesus comes to the earth and he deals with the wicked. The wicked are judged. The wicked are removed. And the righteous enter into the millennial kingdom. If you look through the major prophets or the minor prophets, all of those Old Testament passages refer to Israel coming back to the land and the oppressors being removed and, and uh, the Messiah bringing about his blessing and ruling and reigning in Jerusalem. So the bad guys are gone, uh, not the good guys. Jesus even does this in Matthew chapter 24 in the Olivet Discourse. Uh, you, you might remember those first 12 verses describe there the overview of the tribulational period. So Matthew 24, verses 1 through 12, the overview. And then Jesus talks about 
the most significant sign of the tribulation, and that is the abomination of desolation talked about by Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. And so he says, when you see the abomination of desolation, flee to the mountains. And uh, then he talks about how there's never going to be a time of persecution for the Jewish people like unto those times. And if he didn't keep it short, all would die. And then he talks about there's going to be a sign in heaven, and all will see his glory, and, and he comes. It's a, it's a visible appearing of Jesus Christ. It's not spiritual. It's not mystical. It's a physical appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on there and says that there's going to be two that are walking and one is taken. Or two are sleeping and one is taken. Or two are grinding and one is taken. It's not the righteous who are being taken. It's the wicked who are being taken. So, again, context is very, very important. Look at this next one in contrast. Again, they're similar. There's a taking that takes place, but one of the righteous and the other of the wicked. So, in the rapture, the saints go to heaven. We're going to look at this passage in just a moment in 1 Thessalonians. It says there that uh, uh, we're going to be caught up in the air, or like the passage we just read in John chapter, four, uh, John chapter 14, where Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare that place for you, I will come again, receive you t- to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Well, where is Jesus right now? He's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, right? That's what the Bible teaches. So if he's preparing a place for you there... The saints are going where? They're going to heaven. But when you look at the second coming, all of these passages refer to the saints coming to the earth. Uh, God brings with him, Jesus brings with him uh, that host from heaven. For example, in Revelation 19, Jesus comes riding on a white horse. It's going to be awesome. And uh, it says there's this heavenly host dressed in white robes that are coming with him. Those are those individuals who are in the church age and also from the tribulation period, are going to be coming back, and they're coming back to rule and reign with Christ. So there's similarities, but they're different. Um, thirdly, eminency. As you look at the rapture, uh, it's just eminent. It just, it's always, in these 19 verses, it's always eagerly awaiting the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Uh, watch for him. It's, it's watching for Jesus. But if you look through these 1,800 verses on the second coming of Christ, it's always about the signs. His coming will be after this sign. Here is the sign of his coming. And the abomination of desolation is like the apex of that sign. Talks about it in 2 Thessalonians. Talks about it again in uh, uh, Mark 13 and the Olivet Discourse account there and the book of Luke and book of Matthew as well. So, so it's very consistent. Here is the sign. When you see this sign, know that Jesus is coming, his second coming, is very, very close. So here they look for signs. Here we look for Jesus. There's completely, again, similarities. We're looking for something, but they're different things. One's a person and one's the sign that appears before he comes. Another one is um, the rapture is not mentioned in the Old Testament. And one of the things that people often do when they attack the rapture is they'll say, you know, it's not found in the Old Testament. Well, of course it's not found in the Old Testament because the church is not found in the Old Testament. Um, you go through the Old Testament, it's about God sending a Savior through the descendants of Abraham, the descendant of David, and he is going to be the Messiah, and salvation will come to Israel, oh, and to the nations of the world. But it doesn't mention anything about the church. It doesn't talk about this group that's going to be made of both Jew and Gentile, uh, brought together in this new body, in this new organism called the church. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 3, it's described 
as a mystery, something that's unknown uh, to the Old Testament. And yet, when you think about the second coming, it's promised throughout the Old Testament. It's promised in all, again, of all the minor prophets, all the major prophets, the book of Psalms, it's all over the place uh, that Jesus is coming. Again, similar, both are promised, but one's only in the New Testament, the other one is in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Another contrast would be the rapture takes place before the wrath. So when you read through the Old Testament and it describes there um, the day of the Lord, it describes there the time of Jacob's trouble, we know it's the time of the tribulation, Daniel's 70th week, um, the rapture is taking place before that. And that's the reason it says, like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that he will deliver us from the wrath that is to come. When you read that passage, there's a historical context. We're anticipating this wrath, the time of the tribulation. But here, the rapture takes place. This coming of Jesus takes place and removes the saints before the wrath. Why? Some people would say, why? Why is that important? Because during the tribulation, God is doing two things. One, he's judging the Gentile nations. We see this again throughout the Old Testament. And secondly, he's chastening Israel because by the end of the, of the tribulation period, when he comes back, it says all of the Jews who are alive will look to Jesus and believe in him, Zechariah 14. Well, the second coming of Christ is the climax of the wrath. Uh, again, Revelation 19, you've got those seven years of tribulation. You've got God's wrath, the wrath of the Lamb being judged, thrown out upon the earth. And then the climax of that is Jesus showing up. And it says that the armies of the world are gathered against him. They're attacking Jerusalem. They're sacking Jerusalem. It's often called the Battle of Armageddon. Um, and again, you read that in Revelation 19, but it's, it's the climax. Jesus comes back and he deals with all of the armies there of the world, it says out the sword of his, of his, that's in his mouth. In other words, he speaks and, and he, he destroys those armies. And again, as you read forth in, that, in those following verses, it says that the Antichrist and the false prophet, they're thrown in the lake of fire. It says Satan is bound for the thousand years. So it's the climax of all of that. It's the conclusion of all of the wrath. This is before the wrath. This is at the end of the wrath. Again, similar, but there's differences. And then lastly there, Jesus comes in the air versus Jesus coming on the earth. So again, when you read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says um, there'll be the trump, and it says the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, snatched away, to meet the Lord where? In the air. And it says, thus we shall always be with the Lord. Where are we meeting him? In the air. But if you read through all of the passage about the second coming, it's always coming back to earth. The Messiah is coming back to the earth. Um, again, Zechariah describes Jesus coming and touching down on the Mount of Olives. I love going to Israel. I love being in the, in the promised land. And I love standing on the Mount of Olives because to be able to be there with a group of friends and say, this is the place where Jesus, when he comes back, is going to touch down. Now, all of the armies of the world are going to be sacking Jerusalem it's going to be a horrible situation. It's going to be a horrible situation unfolding. But he's going to come back, touch down right there on the Mount of Olives and deal with all of the armies of the world and rescue Israel at that point. And all of Israel, according to the book of Romans, is going to be saved. So here, saints uh, are taken. We meet the Lord in the air. Here, Jesus comes back, establishes the millennial kingdom. Two completely different things. If I said I was going to meet you uh, tomorrow uh, at the airport, that would be different than saying, I'm going to meet you tomorrow 
um, you know, at the church. It, it, there's just, they're two different locations. They're two different events. They're similar. You're meeting me. But they're two different events. It's just so important. So what I want to do now is I want to move us to specifically seven things that are so important um, for us to understand about, about the rapture. Um, and, and, I, and I just want you to know this. The rapture is attacked. Uh, maybe I should do this first. Maybe I should tell you about the four things that um, people often say about the rapture and attack. And let me just quickly touch on these. One is this, that the rapture is uh, mysticism, that it's mystical, that it's not found, you know, like in all 1,800 verses in the Old and New Testament. And again, I've already mentioned it to some extent. There's a reason for that. The church isn't mentioned in the Old Testament. Of course it's going to be a mystery. If the church is a mystery, then how can it give you the details of the church? For example, the Holy Spirit indwelling both Jew and Gentile, tearing down the wall of barrier between us in Ephesians chapter 2 is not revealed in the Old Testament the way it is in the New Testament. It's totally, totally amazing what things that God is doing in us and through us in the church age, the time of the Gentiles, as Romans says. So it's not surprised that it's a mystery. Sometimes people will say, well, the rapture, I'm not going to believe in the rapture because it's just about escapism. You guys just want out of the wrath that's to come. Let me just ask, ask you a question. If you knew the wrath of, of a gang was coming to your, to your neighborhood, wouldn't you try and avoid that situation? Of course you would. And so when people say things like people who believe in the rapture, they're just trying to escape the wrath. You know what? If Jesus promises he's going to keep us from the wrath, I'm going to embrace that with great joy. And if Jesus said, you're going to have to endure this, this hardship, this affliction, this martyrdom, then that would be our lot. We'd have to trust in the sovereignty of God. But God in his grace has a different program for the church. We are going to be the ones in heaven during those seven years uh, with Christ, um, anticipating his return and coming back with him. A third one is um, it's modernism. Now, this one comes up a lot. Um, and it's often said, in fact, I was just uh, engaged with a seminary professor, and he was saying, you know, that uh, pre-tribulationalism, uh, uh, dispensational premillennialism, that's something all new, it's all modern, therefore it can't be true. And, and he was attacking, you know, for example, Darby, who is one of the early proponents of uh, uh, pre-tribulationalism and, and uh, premillennialism, dispensational premillennialism. And then he, he kind of tracked it, you know, Darby, and it goes to Moody, and Moody to Schofield, and Schofield to uh, Dr. Chafer, and Dallas Seminary starting. And you know what? All that's true. But this is really, really important, friends. Just because Christians for the first 1,800 years of the church didn't believe in it doesn't mean it's not in the Bible. Now, let me give you an illustration of this. In Matthew 19, Jesus is with the disciples, and there's a big crowd, and they say, to Jesus, so what do you say about divorce? Can a man divorce his wife for any reason? And they expected Jesus to give the typical rabbinic answer, and he would quote one of the rabbis, because there were different rabbinic schools. In other words, the oral traditions of the rabbis. Who will you side with? And he doesn't. You know what he says? Have you not read? And he starts quoting Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, that God created them male and female. That there's two genders. And then he goes on and says in that, in that passage that uh, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is what Jesus did. He didn't go back and say, well, the rabbis have been teaching for the last hundred years 
or 500 years since the days of Ezra. He didn't quote any of them. He didn't quote church history. Let me use the term church history there. He didn't use rabbinic history for his foundation to the answer. You know what he did? He went back to Scripture. And so when you look at the rapture and somebody says it's a modern view, don't be surprised at that. Um, it's, it's modern because um, people have been looking at the Scriptures and not just spiritualizing the passages as have been done all the way back to the time of Augustine. So when Augustine comes along, he spiritualizes the whole subject of the kingdom, and then we have amillennialism and postmillennialism comes as a result. It just spiritualizes all of these passages, lumps everything together. It's not surprising that it's modern, if you will, um, because people went back to the Bible, looked at the details. In fact, you know, even those who are critics of dispensational premillennialism, um, a pre-tribulational view, one of the things in all of their writings that they constantly come back to is that dispensationalists are literalists. They actually believe all of the details in the book. And we do, we do, because Jesus says not one jot or tittle will pass away. All these things will come to pass. And so don't be surprised that it's modern. Lastly, they just simply say it's insignificant. The rapture is insignificant. If you got 1,800 verses on the second coming of Christ, what are these 19 verses? Who really cares? Just uh, blend them all together. They're not that significant. And I would just simply say this, that all Scripture, let me just quote the verse to you because you know it, 2 Timothy chapter 3, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God, that the woman of God might be adequately equipped for every good work. So that means every one of those verses, including those 19 verses about the rapture, are important for us to live godly. And let me say this, they are so significant that as we look through just seven of those 19 verses, I think you're going to see there is massive significance for you and I in this last days, this last generation, and it should radically transform our lives. Let's just kind of go down through those just quickly in the time that we have left. Uh, the first one is when you understand the rapture, it, it gives us peace. It gives us peace. Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples. He's about ready to leave. And he says these words, let not your heart be troubled. Don't be rattled. Don't be fretful. Don't, don't come undone. Why? They're gonna, he's, Jesus is going to die. They're going to be under attack. Why should they not be unsettled? Why should they have the peace of God that surpasses understanding? Because they believe in God, believe also in me. And he goes on. And you know this passage. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Again, that doesn't sound like kingdom language of Jesus being on the earth. I go to prepare a place. I'm going to receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Just recently, I was with a pastor who's a tremendous scholar, has a tremendous education. And he made it through seminary like so many people do. And, and he, he really hadn't figured out where he landed on eschatology. But he had read a lot of history, you know, the 1,800 years of Christian history. And so there's more amillennialists than there are premillennialists and so forth. So he, so he just goes, ah, I'm, uh, I'm not exactly sure. Maybe I'm over here. Maybe I'm over there. So we had these initial discussions about a premillennial view of Scripture, that, that Jesus is going to come um, after the, the, the seven years of tribulation, it's going to be a thousand-year literal on the earth. Abraham will be raised. Isaac will be raised. They will have the land. It says in Acts uh, chapter um, 
chapter 6, excuse me, Acts chapter 7 and verse 4, that Abraham did not receive one square foot. And God says, wherever you walk, you and your descendants will have this property. So I went through all these different passages, and I got to this passage. And, and I said, just look at these words. These, these words, because now I was thinking about the rapture and stuff. These words are not about Jesus coming and setting up his kingdom for Israel. And then I went back to the Old Testament, and we're reading through all these, Israel being in the land. This isn't about being in the land. This is about being in heaven. This is a completely different discussion. And you, can, you and I can never have the peace that God intends for us in these last days unless we hold on to this verse. That's why the rapture is significant. Let me give you another one. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 18, it says, comfort one another with these words. Well, that's verse 18. If you start back in verse 13, it describes there that these Christians who were suffering greatly for Jesus Christ, it's not because they were Jews, it's because they were Jews and Greeks who had believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now these Jews and these Greeks had come together as followers of Jesus, and now they're suffering together for the cause of Christ. And, and they've, they've lost loved ones, and they're like, you know, what, what's happened? Has Jesus already come? Have we missed out? And so there's this whole discussion about Jesus' coming and the rapture. It's the most, probably the most read passage on the subject of the rapture. In fact, let me just read to you, again, that passage for, for familiarity. It says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren. We don't want you being ignorant about these things, about those who have died, that you may not grieve as the rest who have no hope. The world's going to grieve. They're not going to have any hope, but you should have hope. For we believe that Jesus died and he rose again. And even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Jesus. And then you look in verse 16, for the Lord himself, he's not sending somebody else, but Jesus himself, will descend from heaven with a shout. That's, again, that's not figurative, that's not mystical, um, it's not spiritualized. Jesus himself will descend from heaven with the, with, the, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. There's resurrection. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, there's rapture, together with them to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So they're talking about their loved ones that they've missed and they've died and now what's going to happen to them and what about us? Well, if the rapture takes place, how are we going to be with them? He's like, don't worry, Jesus is coming and there's going to be a resurrection and there's going to be a rapture and we will always be with the Lord. So if you and I want the comfort when we lose loved ones, whether it's our children, our mom and dad, brothers and sisters, friends, whatever the case might be, we can never have the comfort that God intends for us to have unless we embrace the truth of the rapture. Let me give you another one. It gives us courage. You keep reading down through 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It ends there, comfort one another. And then verse 1 of chapter 5 describes there about the wrath that's going to come upon the earth. It talks about the rapture. Talks about this reunion for us with those who have died and us being with the Lord forever. And then it talks about this wrath. When the world is out there and it uses they. Notice again the pronouns in those verses when you read through them. They and them, they're saying peace and safety and everything's going to be great. The Antichrist is going to pull us through. It says destruction will come upon them. And then it goes on through those next few verses and describes there how we are not children of darkness but children of light. And as a result of that, we should be sober and alert, and we should be serving the Lord Jesus, because we know these things are coming. 
And then because of the rapture, because of the resurrection, because of this reunion that we're going to have and be with the Lord, it says, therefore, notice again the action points, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So, so we're supposed to encourage, we're supposed to strengthen the hands of one another in these last days with the truth, with the reality that Jesus is coming for his church. Never have the courage that we need to make it through these days without it. Here's another one. It gives us love. It gives us compassion towards others. It gives us the ability to navigate difficult things. If you remember in James chapter 5, it talks there about how there are some Christians who are rich, who are putting burdens upon Christians who are not so rich. They're working for them, and they're not paying their, their wages, and they're ripping them off, and how they cry out to God. And three times following that, it says, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, Jesus the judge is coming. And, and how were they supposed to be comforted when they experienced injustice? How were they supposed to experience love and show love to people, quite honestly, that weren't loving? How are you supposed to love your enemies? Well, the secret is, is the truth that Jesus is coming. Look at this. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Why? The judge is standing right at the door. Three times in the passage. Again, if you read the earlier passages, is that you and I can have love. We can love our enemies. We can navigate difficult situations. We can have better relationships. Why? Because of the truth of Jesus' coming for his church. Let me give you another one, and that is zeal. In Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11, it talks about, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, and to live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age. And then it says this, Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God, and Savior, Jesus Christ. By the way, Jesus Christ modifies those two, so he's God and Savior. And it says there, it says, he, give, he um, who gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. See, the reality of the, of the rapture and Jesus' coming, his glorious appearing, it should compel us to be zealous for God. There's a sense of urgency, this anticipation it should make us bold with the gospel to reach our family, friends, neighbors. It should make us zealous for good works in our church, and our ministries, whatever God's calling is for your life, whatever your phase of life, whether you're a man or you're a woman, whether you're single or married, you should have zeal for God because Jesus is coming for us. Does the rapture matter? Absolutely. Another one is joy and grace. That's an amazing verse. If you look back in chapter 3, it says, For we are citizens of heaven. And that we are eagerly awaiting the Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to change our bodies and transform us. And then, and then it talks about Odia and Syntyche, and they're two ladies who are in a fight at the church, and how they're supposed to get over it. And then, and then it says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. The Lord is what? Near. It doesn't say, look for the sign of the Lord. It says, the Lord is near. Jesus is coming. He's right at the door. His, his coming is eminent. Therefore, you and I should be at peace with one another, Odia and Syntyche. And not only that, you should have the joy of the Lord and you should be gracious to one another. You need more grace in your life? You need more grace in your family? You need more grace in your church? Then you and I need to come to this stark reality that Jesus is coming. His coming is eminent. And therefore, we should extend not only joy towards one another and anticipation of that, but also grace to one another. And the last one here I just want to give you for tonight is 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not 
in vain in the Lord. Your toil is not in vain. If you read this verse, it really starts back eight verses early and describes their, the rapture. It says, we're all not going to die, but we'll all be changed. The moment, the twinkling of an eye at the last trump there, and it describes their resurrection again, and it describes rapture. It's one of the great passages of the Bible about the rapture that, quite honestly, is seldom read, it seems. But it goes, not only gives us the revelation and not only the sequence of events, but then it tells us that this is the victory in Jesus. Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, but Jesus has brought about the victory. And then there's this compelling action. What's the compelling action that you and I are supposed to have as a result of this resurrection, of this rapture that's going to take place, the fact that we're going to be transformed, the fact that death doesn't win, the fact that Jesus has overcome? What should we do? Well, it's right there in the passage. We should be steadfast. We should be immovable. We should always be abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because Jesus is coming. We win. Friends, we win. It's not, like, uh, it's not like watching a football game and your team is losing. No, no, our, our team wins in the end. Listen, God gives Satan all the advantages. And so now at times it may seem like you and I are losing, that the church is losing. But remember, it's always looked like that for 2,000 years of church history. But Jesus made a promise, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that's going to happen now. In these last days, there's going to be a moment in time where Jesus says, enough. The church is complete, and he's going to take us home, and we will be with the Lord forever. You know, in kind of summation, I just want to encourage you. These seven things are so significant. Think about what Jesus said. He said, truth, the truth, will set us free. Now, that's true in salvation. The truth of the gospel that he died on the cross, rose again the third day, it sets us free. But the reverse of that is true. Lies bring us into bondage. They don't give us freedom. Lies bring us into bondage. These truths, these verses that we've read, these truths are to change us, to transform us, to to set us free so that we love one another as we should, so we extend grace as we should, so we have the comfort that we need when there's loss in our life, so we have courage to persevere and do what's right and to strengthen one another's hands and to have direction, as this passage here describes. All seven of those things give us strength. They set us free from the weights of our day. You say, are they important? Are they significant? Well, again, all Scripture is inspired by God. They're profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that you might be adequately equipped for every single good work. Someone recently asked me, what are, the, what are the, the, the truths holding you together as you're watching the news and all the things unfolding? And It's this. This is that Jesus is coming. And we need to be faithful to walk with God and be about our Father's business. Do you, remember, do you remember Enoch in the Bible, Genesis 5? Genesis 5 is amazing. It says, Abraham did such and such. Uh, no, excuse me, not Abraham. Adam. Adam did such and such, and then he dies. And then it talks about Seth. And he did this, and then he dies. Eight times it talks about these different Bible characters and then they die. And you get to Enoch. And it says, and Enoch walked with God and God took him. Now Enoch was a contemporary of Noah. In other words, before the flood came, before he finished building the ark, before all that occurred, they were contemporaries. They lived alongside. They lived in those same evil days. And you know what it says about him? Is that he walked with God. Friends, I want to say this to you. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, just 
walk with God like Enoch did during those days. We should do it today. Walk with God. The second thing that really compels me is Jesus is coming, and so we should be about our Father's business. Do you remember that great passage in Luke chapter 2? where Jesus is left behind in the temple and his whole family takes off and heads back home to Nazareth. And, and uh, they come back and find him three days later and he says those infamous words, did you not know I must be about my father's business? Friends, you and I, again, doesn't matter what your occupation is, doesn't matter what our education level is, it doesn't matter where we've been, what we've done. If you're a follower of Jesus, walk with God and be about your father's business. Maybe you're listening tonight Maybe you're watching the stream later and you haven't trusted Jesus as you say, I just want to say this to you. Today is the day of salvation. You need to trust in Christ. Jesus is going to show up. Things are going to change on a dime. It's going to be, it's going to be sudden. Um, it's going to be like a thief in the night. It's going to be unannounced. Jesus has told us all that he's going to tell us about this subject. And the question is, are you and I ready? Have you trusted him? If you haven't, why don't you trust him right now? Why don't you pray with me? Father, we're just thankful for our friends, and God, thank you for letting us reflect on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and God, we know the best days are ahead. They're not in the past, they're not in the present, they're in the future when Jesus comes. And God, I pray that you strengthen the hands of all of my friends who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ tonight. If you haven't trusted in Christ, why don't you call on his name right now? The Bible says those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Just call on him. Jesus, I need you to save me. I don't understand everything in the Bible, but what I know is this, I've sinned and that you're the Savior and that you died, that you paid for sins, that you rose again, and I trust you now the best I know how. I trust you to be my Lord, God, and Savior. I repent of my sins. I turn to you. Thank you for saving me. God, hear our prayers. Help us to draw near to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening and being a part of this week's podcast. Before you go, I'd like to invite you to visit our website, hopeforourtimes.com, and check out the many resources we have to offer. On our website, we have books, DVDs, and daily news articles that will always keep you up to date on the times we're living in. If you'd like to see the video version of this week's podcast, you can find us at Hope For Our Times on YouTube. God bless, and we'll talk to you next time.